Hello and welcome to episode, edition uh, 48 of the Not A Game podcast. Uh, I'm your host, Philippa War, and with me today is Tom Hatfield. Hello. Right, uh, we don't have any special guests, so it is vanilla uh, <laughs> Not A Game. And I guess we'll start with uh, what Tom has been playing. Mm. Well, actually, I don't know if you've been playing this as well, but I've uh, just been messing around in Sunless Sea recently. Um, I played it a tiny, tiny bit when I went over to see uh, Fail Better, like in their, I guess in their natural habitat, which is over sort of Greenwich kind of way. Oh, I, I thought you were going to say, which I assume is some kind of in Gothic Victorian London. <laughs> um, yeah, it's kind of surprisingly uh, sort of futuristic, or at least current, um, their <laughs> offices. But yeah, I sort of played it, uh, this would have been last summer actually, so um, I've I've as in this morning, uh, I've downloaded it and was looking forward to spending some time in that world this evening, actually. Um, but yeah, so I'm kind of interested to hear, to hear what you think, but also excited to, to play it myself because they do such amazing atmospheric games. Yeah, well, I haven't actually played Fallen London at all, um, which is part of why I was going to ask you about it. Cause, uh, um, <laughs> yeah, uh, wait, uh, I know... Um, <laughs> I'm going to mention this right off the bat because uh, Rich Cormac's Fallen Swindlers is funny. <laughs> mm. uh, it's a twine game, which I've I only I've only looked at the very start of because I realised I'm not going to get any of the jokes yet until I've actually played these games. Mm. Um, but it I, is really well done, though. <laughs> all right, cool. Um, but yeah, I, I looked at the first page and I was like, um, Swindon was stolen by bats. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's, a, that's a silly joke. And then I actually bit it up so I see and I was like, oh, no, that is actually the story of Fallen London. Mm. The yeah, Fallen London is great. Just for um, I've recommended it a few times. I think possibly on this podcast, just for um, it's a browser-based game, and what it does is obviously like there are some sort of microtransactions that you can do to sort of um, to get next, which is the uh, the currency in the game, and to sort of speed up the the storytelling but what I like to do is just have it open in a browser and then every time I finish an article or whatever I just go back to it and my um, my uh, sort of I guess uh, whatever the game equivalent of it in energy uh, my mind's blanking on it at the moment um, has has usually reset by then so then I just sort of do a few more things like explore a few more kind of story quests or you know uh, yeah it's just it's it's a fascinating sort of yeah experience and um Hoofy atmospheric, so. So I was going to say, Fallen London is it? Look. Is it like all driven by this, um, just by these sort of little uh, dialogue choice kind of vignettes stuff? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's like you just follow the um, the options on the screen and sort yeah. of go to the places that you. We sort you of know, choose like... your own adventure approach. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's what I thought. I mean, Sun Sea is basically, it takes that, but it also gives it a kind of big overland. Um, thing where you sail around on a ship and then you find islands which will have these little stories mm. um, which uh, yeah it's um, I know Richard, uh, I haven't played Fallen London so I don't know how much of a change that is um, it's very sedate I think which it matches up with what you were saying about, about Fallen London about how it's got an energy system but you don't actually care <laughs> and, uh, you, but you know you don't actually you're never in a hurry and similarly, mm. sail you, you, and similarly, you know, every, all the sailing in Sunless Sea is really slow. But I didn't really mind because of the because it fit the atmosphere. Mm. Um, it felt when I played it, the aesthetic sort of felt relatively close to the. So Fallen London is kind of like this alt version of of sort of Victorian London, mm. um, and so like the. There's a kind of, I guess, sort of steampunky kind of um, ness to it, or at least you know, just a sort of Victoriana kind of coolness. I can't remember if there's actual sort of, sort of interesting tech. Um, there's like, yeah, there's sort of, you know, there's there's it's more magical and certainly. mystical, really, stuff like um, selling but, so was... souls and taking tomb colonists to the undead island. But yes, yeah, so I was kind of, yeah, I was wondering about that in Sunless Sea because when I saw it, it it kind of felt sort of in it occupied the same aesthetic space mm. but I was wondering like how that had developed 
Well, uh, it's hard for me to say because I haven't played the first bit. But yes, it's yeah, definitely... yeah, I know. But that's why I was sort of yeah explaining what uh, Fallen London felt like. So... But it's definitely got that sort of strange, slightly you know haunted, gothic, mystical feeling to it. Um, cool. You know, like the first island you run across is um, just a group of three sisters uh, living out in the bleak wilderness mm. uh, and stuff like that. And and the writing is. There's a very signature style to the writing of uh, to Felbetter's writing, I think. This, um, yeah, um, and I don't really know how to describe it. How, how would you describe it? Uh, what the Felbetter sort of writing yeah. style? Um, it's sort of uh, it's got this sort of gothic attitude to it, but there's a, a humour that sort of pins through and and is. Um, so it's 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 very flowery language, but yeah. not to the point where you end up feeling that it's been overdone without a point. It's kind of it's all in the service of mm. of creating this atmosphere and sort of um, this uh, like it it, uh, it does sort of make fun of itself ever so slightly in how it uses that, um, but also just there's a, a sort of a, a ridiculousness and a humour in in. A lot of the situations, so you do end up just sort of, um, yeah, just it, it. It's basically a pleasure to read and to sort of. It, it's people who enjoy language. Yeah, that's the that's kind of the thing I was thinking of. That sort of slightly semi humorously overwritten, almost Oscar Wildey kind of thing. Hmm. Um, uh, yeah, uh, which is which I really love. Um, I love the little vignettes and the atmosphere and stuff like that. Um, the, uh, I love the fact that the, uh, you start out with a, a ship uh, and you're exploring this underground sea that exists below London, um, hence some of the sea. And uh, <coughs> yeah, you get a uh, you get a ship and you get you find uh, you get crew members who you might find as little characters around uh, that you can recruit in ports and stuff like that. And now they're all named things like uh, the, um, uh, the slippery navigator and. The, the passionate doctor uh, and the haunted surgeon and stuff like that and then like the, 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 only, the one that everyone gets like you get a different one depending on what you've chosen for your background but everyone gets the ship's ma- their original ship's mascot is the comatose ferret mm. <laughs> which is fantastic um, yeah that's one of their things is that you know you, the, the, the sort of the adjectives that get attached to people is kind of mm. so I've really enjoyed exploring and Finding the islands uh, and actually um, even doing little bits of trading and uh, and building up my crew. I'm not so sure about the combat itself, um, the, the sort of ship to ship or occasionally ship to swarm of bats or ship to giant crab combat, um, which basically involves just lining up a series of abilities with differing cooldowns and you've got to you can't shoot anyone until you raise their illumination above a certain amount. Um, because you can't see them, and then you can do evasive maneuvers to reduce your uh, your uh, illumination and fire flares or whatever to increase theirs, and it becomes essentially a trying of raising and lowering these bars until the point at which you actually um, fire a volley that probably instantly kills the other person. Mm. Um, I was rubbish at it. Like my first three lives literally evolved dying in the fir- against the first ship I find. Uh, but yeah. Um, so do you think it's not particularly well introduced yet, or do you think it's just not a style that you are it's, well, comfortable in? Or Yeah, I've, I don't want to be too hard on it, because I haven't even played this game for like two or three hours uh, so far, um, and I spent the first one not understanding it. But it kind of feels like battles have been divided into stuff which is, um, despite all, like, uh, I, I've occasionally, Every time I try and do evasive maneuvers to reduce my illumination, it doesn't really work. I can't keep. I can't ever lower it faster than the uh, the then the other one can um, raise it, unless I'm doing nothing but evading. Uh, mm. So, whenever I've um, so so generally, so they've basically divided all my fights have been divided into stuff where I just flatten the opposition immediately by just like raise it raising their illumination twice and then firing in the dead or stuff that is so hard that I should probably just run away um, 
I don't know, maybe it'll open out more if I find more upgrades and stuff. I've, got, I've only got the basic ship right now. Um, mm. Are you in, like, the base... Like, is it divided into areas of, like, particular skill? Because, like, if you are maybe a bit far out, then... I don't know if, if it zones things in that way. Oh, but yeah, that's, that's the thing worth mentioning. Well, as far as I can tell, the southern sea is slightly harder. The, the enemies there seem tougher. Up north, you get attacked by loads of bats who are terrible, and you will always beat. Um, but also, there's loads of them, and they keep they just keep ambushing you all the time. And it's like JRPG random battles. It's like, no, go away, bats. Mm. Um, uh, although that does mean you can then eat the bats for free supplies for your crew. Um, mm. So yeah, I've, I've I've mostly adventured in the north for that reason. Um, and at the moment, this yeah, that's worth saying. I think. From something Richard said, that um, at the moment there's one default like plan. Uh, there's one default like C, but the map will eventually be scrambled in a roguelike fashion. Um, mm. Future updates, they're gonna actually introduce more randomization into it because there isn't any right now. It's the same every time. So yeah, there was there was a bit earlier on where I was frustrated with it, but I I. Had one long-lasting life, despite limping around and having no money and a damaged ship, um, and it's, it's got a wonderful way of getting you into the mood for it. I think um, that even though I'm, I'm even though I'm not convinced that the combat is ever going to be that interesting, that just the atmosphere of sailing around works really well mm. until you get attacked by like five bats in the space of ten minutes, and then, then you're annoyed. <laughs> Is it similar in terms of it's a thing that you can leave running and then come back to every now and again, or is it something that does need um, concentrated no, playtime? No, it does need attention. You mean you, uh, um, yeah. Um, if think if you if you leave your ship alone, it will just. Uh, I think it will just stop. I don't think it even drifts. Mm. Um, although obviously, because it's got all these dialogue choice things, so this, this sort of choose your adventure stuff, you can just go into a port and leave it running in the background while you do something else. Uh, but yeah it doesn't tick down in real time or anything like that as far as I can tell um, there doesn't seem to be any kind of energy system or anything like that so so yeah it will be played in a different way I think it's less it's more that you would yeah sit down and make it the focus of your attention for a couple of hours rather than just running it in the other window all day mm. okay cool um but yeah, there's really interesting stuff there. Um, I really like, I really like the the uh, character creation in it. Actually, that you, uh, um, the first thing you can say is, I want to ignore all this, and I'll just be a mysterious stranger. Um, but also, you can choose your background. Uh, you can choose how people want to refer to you, um, and that's it. That's that's the, the entire acknowledgement of gender in the game. Really, is just like, what is your? Would you like people to call you sir, madam, captain, citizen, my lord, mm. my lady? Um, and uh, but also you get to choose your goal, which I found really interesting. Like you, at the moment there's only two in there, but there's going there's there's a bit where there's, there's descriptions for more that I haven't been added implemented properly yet. Mm. Um, but so you can choose to have the goal of wealth, in which case you need to buy a nice house, which means accumulating like a thousand echoes, which is the currency. Um, and then once you've got that, you can choose to retire at any point and just say and uh, just end your story. Or the alternative is that you collect different tales and experiences from around the world, and then you write this, and then you write the greatest story ever written, <laughs> and then you can retire. Mm. Um, which stop, which is probably cooler. <laughs> but, uh, um, yeah, so that's um, so that's really interesting. Uh, and again, I like. The way in which it makes these sort of um, intangible things into almost a currency. Like you go into an island and someone tells you, uh, and you uh, you have lunch with one of the uh, lonely sisters on that on um, Hunter's Island, and she tells you a terrible story, a, a terrible like blood-soaked tale of revenge, and then you get a tale of terror. It's an item. You can sell it to people. You can have it. I had it. I had it tattooed on me. In fact. Uh, mm. um, you can and you can use things like that, and you gather enough of those, and you can write your big epic poem. Um, so yeah, the way in which it makes intangible things into objects is really cool and interesting. 
um, and a nice way to kind of a very different way of sort of gamifying storytelling. Okay. I don't know cool. if it uses similar things, and I think it does in Fallen London, maybe? I don't know. In that you get an object that is actually a memory or whatever. You get um, things that have sort of like these esoteric names that sort of make you think about like how that would actually work, like what, what you've actually accumulated. It's really interesting in similar scene that it's totally transparent that this is how the game is working. So, like, you, you read the newspaper like before you set out to see you, you get up in your uh, in the morning you read the newspaper and you get an object called recent news which you can then spend to tell um, people somewhere else about what the news in London is mm. so yeah it's, it's interesting. it makes it absolutely transparent that these ideas have been turned into objects mm. Mm. so yeah I, uh, yeah I imagine I'll be playing quite a lot of it uh, and I'll be really interested to see what how it updates. It's in early access right now, as I said, and, and especially the next big update, which I think is going to be the one that randomizes it. Because mm. I have no idea how big it is. Because um, because because uh, being limited by money and fuel and being beaten up by giant crabs, I haven't actually. Uh, I've only explored, a, you know, a certain area. Mm. But if it it sounds like it's done that good thing with early access of of being worth the money that you pay for it, regardless of the fact that it's not finished yet. I think so. I mean, it definitely gives you like a a proper representative stamp sample of what the game is going to be like. It's really interesting that they've released what is essentially clearly supposed to be a roguelike randomized game, but they haven't put the randomization in for the first early access release. Mm. Um, that's really unusual, but it does actually kind of work. Um, yeah, I've been doing a lot of sailing recently because the other thing I've been playing is Black Flag. Mm. I don't know if you, have you played any of that. Um, I started to, um, but it's I've got it on uh, 360, and the graphics just I mean, like it's it. I've seen people screenshots from it on PC. It's a gorgeous looking game, and sort of. I don't know, I just I felt like I wasn't sort of seeing it properly almost. Um and then uh yeah, I think I well, I played it for a while, did the sailing aroundy kind of thing, and then went to play Sib uh Sid Meier's Pirates instead. <laughs> it is a lot it does remind me a lot of Sid Meier's Pirates. but unfortunately being an Assassin's Creed game it does take a long time to get to the point where you've unlocked all the things and you can do all the things. I think ultimately I want a game where I can sail around and listen to sea shanties, and it does that in some ways, and then the rest of the time it's an Assassin's Creed game. <laughs> yeah. And I, I've i kind of run out of patience of like hiding in groups of people, and I don't know, I just I, it, they've never really grabbed me, and I don't know why. Um, maybe I should just give it one more go, but... No, it's, it's, it's a fair point, I mean... I really like it, but the reason I really like it is is for all the bits on boats, um, and this this the actual Assassin's Creed stuff is solid enough when you're when you're on a boat. So like when you're when you board a boat and then you leap over there and you do your Assassin's Creed stuff to kill all the crew in a great big fight, that works really well. But then when you put into port and you get like regular old assassination missions again, it's just like no, I, I don't want to do. It. I want my boat back. Give me my mm. boat. I just yeah, I found all the bits that involved playing Assassin's Creed mostly to be quite boring, and then the bits where I was like, "Hey, I'm on a boat, I'm singing sea shanties," and then I was like, "Well, I could get pretty much this exact experience by playing um, pirates and listening to sea shanties on Spotify." So I might just do that for a while, and then it just denigrated into or, um, yeah, I, denigrated. Uh, I just ended up listening to sea shanties in the bath. So I mean, you know, I kind of I've. I've achieved what I needed to with that game, I think, but uh, I'm playing any of it, really. Um, although I was talking to the guys who made it um, when they were, or, you know, like, obviously some people who worked on the teams of the people who made it. I think um, everyone made Assassin's Creed Black Flag, really. But when they were in um, London for, like, a preview event, and they were saying that, like, how the ships work is kind of interesting because... 
they're two sort of separate entities and then as soon as they sort of get into proximity of boarding and things like as soon as you do the the boarding style thing they become one entity and the sort of working out how to transition between the two was kind of interesting and then there's also some like underwater bits which like you know it was uh, they're underwater bits in games and we were sort of talking about that because they're sort of always a bit tricky to do and they were saying that they'd like tried to look at the you know like I guess Dire Dire Docks sort of bits of Mario Kart uh, um, Mario Kart what am I talking about I'm so tired um, of uh, Mario 64 because that was like a game that they felt like really got underwater traversal right I mean like I don't think I, I found some of the underwater stuff just a bit tedious or a bit, you know, like I it was just like, oh great, I'm underwater in a game. Um, but yeah, it's kind of interesting ha- hearing. I haven't done the underwater stuff yet because it, this is the thing, it still does all the tedious locking off and it takes a, quite a while to get everything. Uh, mm. I mean, you play for like an hour and a half maybe before you actually get your damn ship. And like, I, I, I was speaking to, uh, uh, yeah, I was speaking to people who just stopped at that point because they're like, they go through this whole thing that opens just like an Assassin's Creed game, and then you break loose and get a ship, and then it kicks you into the bullshit future sections that are in all Assassin's Creed games. And other people, people have just gone, no, I'm stopped right there. Weirdly, I quite like the modern day Abstergo stuff. I sat there and actually read the employee handbook that they give <laughs> you, like cover to cover. I was just like, oh, okay, I'm just interested in how they they'll have written this. Um, but. Um, yeah, so I kind of, I, I, those aren't the bits that I objected to. I just, I felt like um, it's a game which kind of promises a lot. And then it's sort of, it, for me, who didn't, who isn't an Assassin's Creed fan, particularly, it just felt like it got in the way of itself by making me do the bits that I haven't particularly loved from other other games or from, you know, like having played bits of the other games like I was like oh I'm going to have to do this again before I can do any of the things that you've advertised that are interesting to me I, I haven't played a lot of Assassin's Creed I just to be honest I played the first one um, <clears throat> and I, I missed basically all of the Ezio stuff and came out for Black Flag but I know what you mean I mean there's, there's a bunch of stuff there that just hasn't worked and has never really worked the combat system has always been a bit weird in that they'll give you like They'll give you the, like, the instantly murder everyone option and expect you to use the options that aren't the instantly murder everyone option. I don't know. Like, I think maybe I've, like... It, it seems to be a taste thing because I know people who absolutely love those games and, like... Um, especially the second one, actually. Um, and I've watched... Yeah, I've watched people play through it. I, You know, I'm kind of aware of the how it all works. It's just that when I play it, I don't feel like I'm having fun a lot of the time. <laughs> So it's it's just not the sort of game uh, mechanic that that seems to get me excited. I think, and so yeah, like the sailing stuff, I really really enjoyed. Yeah, um, no, but that's, I can't that's... remember at what point you get that because I think because obviously at, like the preview they had like different sections of it unlocked, so I wasn't entirely sure how that worked. And then playing it like recently, as in when it came out, so months and months ago. Um, the big thing that I remember was just sitting there reading this, I don't know, like 28-page handbook <laughs> while I listened to Leonard Cohen and drank, like, whiskey or something. No, that's the thing. It does take, well, it does take, like, I think an hour and a half before you get your ship. And then you can play it for another two or three hours after that before you've, like, unlocked the ability to build your fleet and stuff like that. But, um... Some of the characters but, were interesting. Yeah. It's like a... The, I don't know, but I, I kind of felt bad about some of it. Like, you know just sort of um, there's a, a sort of nice sort of bumptious kind of uh, guy who you meet when you're sort of titting about uh, I think um, and he you know you use his ship to take you somewhere and you lie to him about who you are and like I just sort of felt really bad about that I liked him yeah that's weird I haven't seen him again since either um, but yeah there's when it works when it really works it is in those I mean Partly it's in the ship-to-ship stuff, which was created for Assassin's Creed 3, and plays like, there's nothing else that really does that, I don't think. There's like, there's ship-to-ship combat games, but they all tend to be very top-down strategy stuff that this almost does it as a sort of third-person over-the-shoulder kind of thing. Mm. Um, but, and then, when you, yeah, when you get the boarding stuff as well, it's just incredibly smoothly transitions between 
you know, ship to ship combat, and then suddenly you're a third person. You're you're in third person, and you're jumping across from one ship to the other and starting a fight. Mm. And that's all fantastic. Um, but yeah, occasionally it just throws some of that old stuff back at you, like the following stuff, following people in games surreptitiously. It's never been fun. No one's made it fun. Especially not Ubisoft, despite doing it in so many different games. And also, they then do that in ships as well. Ship stealth. (laughs) I remember I found it quite difficult to see other ships sometimes when my sails were in full... full, um... unfurled mode. Um, And I ended up, like, crashing and, and, like, killing some civilians, and then it does that whole, yeah, we're going to desynchronize if you kill any more people, or, like, you know, this version of Conway did not, you know, um, his name Conway? Um, did not do killing, oh, yeah, uh, did not do killing of innocent people, and you're just like, whoa! I'm running into that template, but, yeah, there's, there's a, a bunch of annoying stuff around that, but... I think it's, like it is. it's fine, it's just that my objections to it tend to be rooted in the fact that I have to play a lot of an Assassin's Creed game to do something that I don't associate with Assassin's Creed and, and like so obviously that feels like slightly more of a, an endorsement to you know people who, who really like the Assassin's Creediness of, of Assassin's Creed yeah. games. I mean yeah, I think, I think it's the best one they've done in a long time by because of that way, that way in which it splits out. Um, Fucking sea shanties are amazing. They are brilliant, actually, and that's that's one of the really great things about it is the little bits of, of reactions that your crew will have to all the different things. Like they'll start just, when you're just sailing across the sea for a bit, they'll suddenly pipe up with a shanty, and then they'll um, and then they'll react and call out. Like you'll you'll go past like a little harpooning section, which is one of the little mini games, and like a whale will jump up in the sea. And someone, one of your crew, will shout and point at it, mm. and other stuff like that. And it's <clears> that's all just those little touches are really brilliant. Um, and yeah, once you get into the middle of the game, it really sells that fantasy of just sailing around, plundering ships and stuff like that. Mm. Um, but yeah, it's it's uh, it, it, but it still it still has a bunch of baggage. Um, and yeah, I would love if they just launched a. A series. It'll have to be a series, because of course it will be, of just pirate games, based on Black Flag World removing most of the Assassin's Creed elements, especially all the fucking Templar versus. Um, it, it feels like a, a game kind of at war with itself at times, because um, like Kenway himself as a protagonist does not give a shit about the Assassin's Creed universe. It's like he'll do the, you know the thing where you you assassinate someone and they do the big philosophical speech about maybe you're the real bad guy. Whilst in the weird, whilst in the in the weird animus world, and that's never actually been quite very well explained. Um, so this that happens, and this guy's doing his whole speech, and he just ignores him and steals his wallet. Hmm. <laughs> it's like no, no, I don't really give a shit. I literally his entire motivation is I want to beat people up and take their stuff. He's, mm. He is a pirate. <laughs> he doesn't give a damn about his assassins versus templars bullshit. Hmm. I mean, it's something that is on my list of things to go back to. I just, yeah, it it has rapidly slipped down the pile because it didn't, it didn't grab me enough when I when I first had that enthusiasm. And in the sort of intervening time, the idea of pouring, you know, dozens of hours into a game mm. that that I'd sort of bounced off to start with has been, yeah, like there's always something that you would be better off playing because there's always just so many games. Mm. No, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, that's the probably the biggest flaw in the game is just front the way it front loads or the, the way the first like two hours is all bullshit, none of the good stuff. I think it would just be so great if it launched you straight onto the boat. Mm. It would just be like, right, well, you've got a boat. <laughs> Come on. Yeah, I mean, it, like there's a bunch of mechanics that you have to learn, but I'd love to see more, especially open world game things do these things contextually and that kind of does happen like when I found a harpooning place it just gave me the harpooning tutorial and that was it but then also I found a place where you could do the diving and it said oh no you haven't progressed far enough in the story to unlock the diving yet and I was like oh, fuck off just give me the diving tutorial and let me go I think you need to get a diving bell from somewhere to unlock the diving the diving sections yeah no, memory serves I can see it in the store I can you know but I can't buy it because I haven't progressed far enough in the story Oh, that's annoying that it exists. Mm. Like, 
that's yeah. Mm. And a bunch of stuff actually. When I first got my ship, there was a huge. Almost all the upgrades were locked off until it told me how to do upgrades. And it's just, oh, just piss off. Just react to what I'm doing instead. If I buy a thing, say, oh, all right, this is the. If I go into the store for the first time, say, hey, here's a tutorial for buying a thing. Now you are allowed to buy all the things. Mm. Or like at least have a reason that they're not available. Like for example, you need a person on your crew with a very specific skill set to actually attach it therefore you cannot get it because you don't meet them till later you know rather than you know like just saying oh some of those things world breaking no 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 actually that's the thing I kind of like actually and then and speaking about those two games in close proximity one of the cool things I like about <coughs> Sun and Sea is you have all these little characters even if they exist only in cards and little um text-only conversations who are part of your crew, whereas um, Assassin's Creed has you and your quartermaster is the only person who's an actual person, everyone else is just a generic pirate model, so that's kind of a shame. It would have been awesome to, it would have been cool to just have a little bit where it's like, ah, you recruit the gunner guy who really knows how to do the cannon stuff, or, I don't know, maybe give it, just give them a little bit more personality to your crew. But I am still enjoying shooting the ships and jumping on them. Mm. Anyway, I've talked for like half an hour now. You should talk about something. Um, I've been playing... Well, I played uh, a story about my uncle for uh, for a review on RPS, actually. Um, and it's a weird game. It's like a little... Um, it's just a little thing. Um, and it's about you telling your child a bedtime story and the bedtime story is the game um and it's about a a time that you went to your uncle's house and found that he was gone and and then sort of you uh he's a a scientist and you uh find a cool suit that lets you do particular things like uh use like a grappling hook uh beam and um you can jump really far without hurting yourself and eventually you get sort of jetpack boots and stuff that he's left for you um and what essentially you're you're doing is you fall through like a a waste disposal thing into a a kind of alternate universe or like a you know just a different world and you have to go try and find him um and it's essentially just, just sort of how you uh, the story of how that happens, but it's the the best thing about it by a mile is the the uh, grappling hook experience and the the way that that works. So you you sort of you know you use the mouse buttons to control the thing. I think it's right mouse button to sort of do a big jump and left for the to activate the the hook. And so it's it's really cool in that you can sort of see the potential for it because it's really intuitive and there are lots of little sequences where you use it to get across gaps to navigate sort of weird terrain to sort of swing your way through stalactites and um sort of access. I do love a good grappling hook. Yeah and to like just access different parts of this world but they're always sort of too short like there's a, a point at which you get um you you can start recharging the the suit you you only have three grappling hook charges as you go uh once you between when you are on the ground and when you're on the ground again so basically right. while you're airborne you've got three three uh hooks but um at some point you you unlock this thing that tells you you start encountering these crystals sorry that you can absorb their energy and recharge your suit in in that way and so i was kind of expecting it to do sort of maybe just like a whole level as as one um continuous experience you know just sort of swinging around like you know kind of like spider-man almost but um, it never quite did. It always kept sort of interrupting with just like little asides, or you know, you'd you'd do one thing that was clearly a run of mm. you know this ability, and then you'd stop and sort of you know like look around for where you were next supposed to go and things like that. So it kind of it kept losing the sort of the joy of movement because you would then hit the ground again and you'd be like oh okay and and some of the signposting isn't particularly obvious as to where you're supposed to go so you can't always sort of forget about that and and just carry on or um 
and the the story itself is kind of it's not particularly engaging i mean it's it's um it's gentle in the way that you would expect from from a child's bedtime story but it that doesn't necessarily make it compelling mm-hmm. um so yeah you're just sort of looking for your uncle and the ending doesn't feel particularly satisfying or impactful to me anyway um so you said um you said it's sort of framed as a story uh, a story you're telling someone else's so i do anything with that uh, like you know like how um prince of persia used to play with the idea of the prince telling the story and then say and then messing it up when he died no no it doesn't um you just sort of go back to the checkpoint i mean i mentioned this in the in the thing just the fact that like when you're aware of of it being narrative framing then every time you sort of mess up and have to do another bit it's kind of like well am i just telling my kid the story of how i fell off a ledge 400 times well yeah that was like, the big thing in prince of Persia, that every time he like fell to his death he was like no wait that's not what happened <laughs> and yeah. him saying, and then i fell to my death wait a second no i'm still alive but yeah, so I mean, it doesn't do anything that clever. It just sort of leaves you thinking, this is a bit of a boring bit of the story for the kid, you know, just like having you plummet to your death and sort of, you know, I guess, you know, you, you do sort of wonder if perhaps you told them this really sweet story, but ended up interspersing it with swearing and repetitive weirdness and, you know, just um all kinds of nonsense um so yeah like that that conceit sort of doesn't really work because it's yeah like they don't really acknowledge it in any way they don't acknowledge the problematic nature of it in any way and then like it was some of the bits are quite sweet you know some of the exchanges that this kid has with her dad um but it's not Essentially, the game, I felt, had potential, but it had potential in the sense that I thought that it could have done some really interesting things with with speed runs and with just sort of, maybe not even any uh, audio at all, just an experience of, like, moving through these beautiful environments. Mm. Um, I think that kind of stuff could have actually been really moving and, and sort of maybe using music to try and tell it, you know, almost like a, an interactive uh, dance performance. So you don't think the framing device really adds much? In fact, you think it kind of diminishes it? No, it's well, it clearly wasn't the strong suit of the the game. Mm. The strong suit was the the um, the tools that it gave you to to explore the the worlds, and then it never seemed to exploit those mm. to the extent that it could have. So it was just a bit disappointing, really, like to sort of see that they could have. And when you're done, when you finish the game, it does open up um, a sort of time trial thing. But all that is, is that it's the the levels of the game with the dialogue taken out and you just have to navigate them, really, Mm. rather than it being a set of shorter, well curated um, sort of running, jumping experiences. I just I felt like maybe it could have just been good if it had if it had come with like a level editor and the community could have just experimented with creating you know different sort of ice cavern traversal things you know I thought that could have been really cool. No, mm. oh, because I mean it's an interesting tool set the use of. Sorry, I've grappling hooks and repeatedly grappling in midair, but you've got to push it. It reminds me of something I saw at Res. I don't know if you played uh, Enter the Ark. Nope. It was. Um, uh, this is a platform game, and you just play as a small, like glowing white uh, light ball. But you you had like a triple jump, um, but it worked on the same principle in that you um, <clears throat> you could jump three times in uh, in the air, and if you hit one of the uh, like little glowing, and if you collected a little glowing energy ball, you've instantly recharged. And there were puzzles that were incredible uh, towards the end of it that were incredibly long bits where you were just like dashing backwards, forwards, up, down, left, right in midair. Um, you know, uh, without ever touching the ground, uh, whether it would carry on going to the same extent that you're looking for, I don't know. But uh, mm. it just reminded me of something with a similar kind of mindset. Yeah, so I didn't. It wasn't a great game, but like it was, you know, it was sweet, and um, you know that it it wasn't all bad. It was just mm. there was it, it it felt a lot of of sort of I guess wasted potential. Like they clearly had some 
some things that they wanted to do with it that perhaps weren't quite playing to to the strengths that they had in their tool set. I mean, it's quite a shame when like the tool set, the level, essentially the level design doesn't live up to the tool set because that can be fixed just by making a level editor uh, and letting other people loose on it. But um. maybe they will at some point. But yeah, like it was, yeah. So it was, it was fine. But um, yeah, I didn't particularly. I didn't particularly enjoy it, to be honest. It was, you know, it was just a thing that I played and that, you know, there were some good things about it and there were some bad things. So, um, yeah, I'd be interested if other people had played it and, and felt completely differently. Um, yeah. It's, I mean, yeah, it's, it's interesting that, as you say, it's framed as the story and, and the way it, it the, a story about my uncle and the fact that it kicks off as a bedroom story kind of gives you a certain expectation, I guess. Mm. Um, that apparently doesn't really live up to. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Mm. Um, what else have I been doing? Uh, I've been on a few work trips. I went to ESL One, which was the Dota tournament in Frankfurt. Um, I went to Feral Vector, which is an indie uh, indie kind of uh, set of talks and uh, games played and things like that, which was in a crypt in uh, Clerkenwell. Um, I wanted to go to Feral Vector, but I couldn't um, make it to London on Friday. Um, was it good? It was good, actually. There were some really interesting talks. Um, Alice uh, O'Connor did her um, did a talk about her interest in readme.txt files. Uh, She's got a website for that, hasn't she? Yes. Uh, yeah, I'll put a link to it because it's it's kind of a lot of it's from the mods and uh, in the nineties and stuff like that. It's it's really interesting. BN, so it's all about because uh, she likes the readme files. Even you know, is she's not interested in playing the mods most of the time it's it's more just the sort of the personal uh snippets that you get in those and the ideas that people are interested in and what they thought they could bring to a game and why and you know you get like slices of personal drama when people just sort of use it as a, a as a space to sort of complain about something else or like to sort of passive aggressively explain the reasons for them not doing something some of them are really poignant as well so um but yeah it's kind of it's it's just an interesting and very human um uh collection of of documents actually which is fascinating and i really enjoyed that um and there was also uh yeah. i mean i've spent a lot of time like writing about writing about different mods and things and unfortunately never actually about the modern communities because they are kind of fascinating and that in the way that these small communities will get, like big egos or people who are always convinced the game, the uh, the, the game series that they love is is is, uh, is always broken and wrong, or fights and fallouts. Um, it's a bunch of fascinating kind of human drama going on there. Mm. Yeah, and. Um... There was uh, Tim Hunkin, who was uh, who designs those uh, really cool arcade machines. He was there talking about uh, his work and that he's going to be opening up um, a new arcade in in Hoburn, actually, uh, which should be really cool. I'm really looking forward to that. Um, I'm not actually I'm not familiar with him actually. Um, so he, uh, does he have an arcade somewhere or already? Yeah, yeah, it's um, it's by the the pier. He actually, I think he used to host the Secret Life of Machines, um, mm. like the the series. Um, but yeah, he he makes all these uh, arcade machines, and there's like I think he's got the um, I think it's called the Under the Pier Show, which is um, on uh, it's a pier in Suffolk, uh, and I've completely forgotten the um, sorry, there's plane going overhead. Um, I've completely forgotten the name of the pier, actually. Uh, but, um, yeah, so he's got some really cool stuff there, and, it, like, he was showing videos of some of the things. I, I only... Uh, I didn't catch all of the talk. I wasn't there for the beginning. But, um, like, he was showing uh, a sort of a nuclear... Um, 
nuclear power kind of uh, machine where you pick up these power rods and you have to insert them into a thing and um, yeah like if you if you get it wrong then it uh, gives you a piece of nuclear waste to sort of take away with you it's um, just like a, a piece of uh, a stick of rock um, type slice that just has like a nuclear symbol like running through it and um, yeah like uh, it it all of his stuff has a kind of a, a cool sense of humor as well. Like I think he was, I think he was saying that he's done some research into you know the fact that arcades have been used for things like money laundering and the fact that you know like um, financial regulation is a bit uh, you know contentious and problematic and bad uh, at the moment. And so he's uh, been working on a machine that you sort of you pick up uh, money from the bottom of this thing and try to drag it to the top. But if um, a regulator sees you while you're uh, while you're pulling it up, like you you go uh, past all these levels, and if a, a regulator happens to be looking while you're trying to drag money past their their line of sight, then I think you sort of you drop back down again. Um, so it's kind of it's stuff like that. You sort of you're trying to avoid the yeah the regulators and sort of uh, drag this money uh, past them. So there's things like that, and then there's a, a sort of an anal probe one where you're sort of you use the machine to probe uh, an alien, and then eventually you've sort of probed it too much and it gets cross and and it it sort of probes you back, as in like a a, a thing kind of projects from the machine and smacks you on the butt. Jeez. Um. So yeah, like it. Well, you say Jesus as if that's like a terrible thing. It's like it's actually really funny. It's not. Okay, it's not assault at all. <laughs> no, you're not being abused or anything. Like it's just, yeah, it's just like a playful kind of mm. funny, but still, you know, it is thought provoking or you know, like it, it's been made with intelligence rather than you know just for the sake of of. A quick sort of pun or a quick laugh or anything like he really loves the sort of the making process and the Mm -hmm. um, yeah he talked really knowledgeably about it It was really interesting Um, yeah just hearing somebody who's that passionate and has you know sort of years of expertise and is just really enthusiastic it's great Mm. Um, yeah so it was it was a really cool day and actually I went through to the to the games room and I, I I think I'd played a fair few of the things that were there before, so I wasn't really that bothered about it. As in, you know, like it was nice. It was really nice seeing other people like playing all that stuff. But yeah, um, so I was kind of wondering if there's anything there that I'd not not seen before. And there was, um, oh, what's it called? Disunion, I think, uh, which is the um, the Oculus Rift project. Like it's just a, a sort of maybe a 10 second kind of experience uh, but it's that you are lying on a guillotine and you have your head chopped off oh yeah I know I saw you mention this on Twitter that sounds quite disturbing so well I was interested in it but in that kind of I was wondering whether it would be sort of a, a problematic experience I guess because obviously um, that is it runs the risk of making light of something uh, that I guess is, is you know, is uh, still a, a beheading, basically, is not a, a thing that is fun to take lightly, mm. um, especially in sort of relation to something like, you know, uh, getting my words all mixed up. Um, but basically because of uh, a fair few things on, on social media and, and uh, sort of, I guess, the, the sort of the beheading videos of, of, of people. I was, I was kind of slightly cautious about, and, you know, that's not to sound super worthy. It's just that that's something that it made me slightly sort of aware of. But anyway, so I put the thing on and I was just really interested to sort of see whether it could replicate any sense of disembodiment or or of sort of disorientation um and i think they were saying that one person had actually screamed during the day as it as it had happened but i think it was probably more sort of surprise or or whatever because what you have is when you put it on you sort of you can look around and it's very much set you know in the french revolution so there's lots of uh, sort of crowd scenes it's it's almost like one of those um 
sort of uh, paper penny theatres. So you've got like a static crowd, but there's layers of it. So it looks, you know, sort of uh, dimensional. Um, and so, but you've got people sort of saying, oh, we didn't deserve to live. And, you know, all this kind of, um, you know, uh, stuff that just sort of fitted with that general uh, conceit. And if you look behind you, you can actually sort of see the the guillotine, the um, the you know the the planks that keep you in place with the circle cut out the thing that i that sort of broke it a bit for me actually was turning around and just sort of being able to see through that hole and knowing that you know there's no in-game body for you to be aware of you are just a fixed looking point and i think it would probably have been better if you'd looked behind you and all you could see was the was the wood rather than the gap because that would have at least implied that you were being held in place or something Anyway, and then the guillotine comes down and your uh, point of vision just, like, goes haywire and then, you know, comes to a stop, obviously. Like, that's supposed to be that your head is sort of rolling or, you know, flying off in one direction or whatever. Um, yeah, so and I, I did it a couple of times and, I, I, you know, I never felt sort of disembodied or, you know, like, I, I never felt... I mean, obviously, I wouldn't really know what that felt like, but I, it, it never felt weird. Mm. Um, it was more that it was an interesting experiment in a thing that that technology can feasibly attempt. <laughs> mm -hmm. So, yeah, it was, it, was, it was an interesting one to, to get to grips with, but I was, yeah, I would be interested to hear from people who maybe were a bit disoriented by it or were a bit sort of thrown or you know perhaps even upset you know I'd, I'd just be interested to to know what other people's experiences were because everybody that was there at the same time as me I think was approaching it in a similar way and so you know they were all just like oh okay that was interesting and then you know would go on to the next thing so yeah it'd be interesting to perhaps get a a more diverse group of, of participants. Um, shall we answer some questions? Well, I mean, if you were interested in ESL one, if there's anything you wanted to say about it, yeah. go ahead. Um. Well, I th I think more just that it was an interesting. Uh, I think I actually I'd be interested in in case anybody had actually watched it because obviously I was there, um, getting the atmosphere and sort of talking to people in person. So I'd be interested to know what it was like from a from a spectator point of view, whether it was whether. Uh, there was anything different about it as opposed to other other Dota tournaments or you know I just I guess yeah like because now I I get to go to these things they do feel distinct in a different way because they are physically distinct from one another but when you're sort of streaming it to the same sofa that you always watch it from or whatever I, I'd just be interested to know if, if other people had okay well I've... had a, a feeling of difference between those things be cool. If anyone listening did see it, let us know. Although every time we ask people questions on the podcast itself, no one answers. Uh, Why do you say that? Because like <laughs> that might be the thing that stops them from saying, like, oh well, if no one ever does, then maybe I won't bother this time. You know, like I was going to email in, but you know, maybe I, maybe I'll just keep my thoughts to myself because it's not the dumb thing. You should definitely email in. It would be nice to hear. Mm. You. Never keep your thoughts to yourself. Proclaim them loudly for all the world to hear. Uh, and now I guess we shall do some questions. Uh, we've got some some Dota related ones, so I guess that's that's um, it, instead of me talking about ESL one, then we can uh, we can talk about what other people uh, are, are querying. So one is uh, from Ed, who asks MMOs and online only games, for example, Dota and so on. Um, look interesting, but also intimidating for new players without an established group. What's the best way to break this barrier and encourage new players? Are there any you would particularly recommend? That's a good question, actually. Um, this is a thing I've had problems with before. Both, um, uh, I mean, with MMOs. Uh, with MMOs, it's kind of... Uh, actually, it's the same thing, it's just more obvious with MMOs. Because like, you know when you all start playing a new MMO together? Mm. And you're like... There's a sort of implied agreement that you'll only play with each other, but then someone always levels up by themselves and leaves you all behind, and it's really awkward to play together now. Mm. Um, and in a way, that kind of happens with Dota as well, but it's just like instead of actually leveling, it's practicing and knowledge. Mm. 
Mm. Yeah. So it can be really hard to coordinate a bunch of people. Even when you decide you get like a group of people to start with, um, you really need to know that you all have the same kind of commitment level. But I think what uh, Ed's talking about is the fact that um, if you don't have an established group at all, oh, yeah. so how you sort of even set that up. And I'd say that for, ex for, for the MMO example, that's where guilds come into their own. Um, so, for example, if you... Um, like PC Gamer tends to have guilds for things, and so uh, like I, I joined the one for for Wildstar, and and the people on there have just been really lovely. And like if you ask a question, they'll help you out. And if you want to sort of uh, do some uh, dungeons and stuff, like you can probably like get a, a group together. And essentially, it's it's about sort of um, maybe finding a, a safe space or like a, a welcoming group of people who want to, to play with you. So for MMOs, I, you know, I'd say, yeah, just find a, a guild that you're comfortable with. And then in terms of, uh, things like Dota, um, I know that a few of, uh, the people that I play with also set up the, um, the RPS Dota group. And so, you know, like there's a mumble server and, and you can sort of hop into that and try and find people who are looking for games. And um, you can also set up, I think, yeah, you can set up guilds and things in Dota so that if, if anybody is online from that particular group, then if, if you're a part of it as well, you can just message people and see if you, if they fancy uh, a game with you and things like that. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, that's generally a good idea. Like, lots of most communities uh, most big game communities will probably have guild presences and things. So I don't know. Obviously, I don't know what publications or websites or web comments or whatever Ed might be a fan of, but that's a good place to find. And the PCG and uh, obviously one's quite good as well. And um, for Mo for Mova specific for Dota specifically, um, there's also Crate and Crowbar do have their Dota guild as well now, don't they? Mm -hmm. So, yeah. which uh, has an emphasis on helping people into. Um, uh, helping movies as well, so that could be good to plug up hot dupes. Mm. And then, in terms of just uh, like learning the game, like uh, going to YouTube and um, looking at some of the tutorial videos that the community's created, and um, watching particular streamers and things like that, like uh, Malini, uh, who is a, a Dota sort of analyst, caster, former pro player, you know, that kind of. Uh, person has uh he, he's very good at explaining what he's doing um and why so if you're if you're looking for s some kind of instruction and and sort of feeling a bit sort of out of depth um those kinds of resources will really help you out a fair bit you know uh, even if you don't have real life people that you can direct questions to mm -hmm. um i had a guy called purge recommend to me a lot as well for that sort of thing Mm, yeah, like Purge has done uh, like guides for each of the heroes and things like that. But um, yeah, like there's there's a whole heap of people out there who will do that. Or you can just you know hop onto Twitch and find um, just anybody streaming really, um, and just see what they're doing and and what seems to be working, and and you know uh, try and factor that into what you do or factor in. The decisions, you know, like where are they standing? What are they buying? You know, who are they focusing on? You know, that kind of thing. So yeah, um, hopefully that that has contained at least one piece of useful information. Yeah, I mean, said like I said, for me the hard thing with the group is to find people who have the same kind of commitment level. Because if you're with, if you're playing, if you do manage to find a group, but if you find you're playing with people who play all the time, or uh, and you want to play a little or vice versa, it can be quite tricky. Mm. Yeah. Um, and then the other question that I had was uh, bah, 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 uh, from Nicholas West asking, uh, what do you think the prize pool for TI5 will be? Uh, does it need to just keep getting bigger to stay interesting? Um, I'm not sure about how big it will be, but one of the things that this year obviously did was um, so obviously last year's was uh, really good and really successful, and then this year just sort of knocked uh, the whole thing out of the ballpark. Uh, but I think um, a large part of the appeal, well, a large part of the appeal is the 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 extras that you get from from investing, like you know the 
the boosts and the um, the chance to vote on on new arcana items and the, um, the the prize drops that you get and the treasure chests and like the the different uh, game modes that were then added as a result and the couriers you know like and all of that kind of stuff and so um, like it, it's interesting to sort of think about where the game might be in a year's time and what then might the community want added because I think there will always be uh, a market for cool new stuff like you know new couriers and new items and you know sort of uh, champion redesigns and uh, sorry hero redesigns but um, there's also a sort of you know I, I, I wonder you, you know things like um, like um, Oh, what's the item? You know, like they they were going to add the daily hero challenge and stuff like that. So uh, they have added the daily hero challenge. Sorry. So, it, you know, like I don't know whether people would be as enthusiastic when that's not a new thing again, or you know. Um, yeah, I mean, like Valve's whole model is basically built around exponential growth. They don't believe there is any kind of real up there's like a finite audience they are always about growing the audience mm. so I think I'd, I'd just be interested to see how much they they do differently next year you know like because I think they'll you know <laughs> essentially what the stretch goals will be <laughs> because yeah like there's stuff like um, so the A to Z challenge support is an awesome thing that I'm glad that they're adding um, but it's something that once it's in obviously they can't use it as a stretch goal next year so you know obviously that doesn't mean that they won't come up with other things and that the community won't have found other things that it wants or you know and I think there's actually also a large part of wanting to be part of the international and wanting to actually just sort of donate a bit of money towards it and um, yeah so I think that I don't really know that I've answered the question particularly well. I think it, it, it depends on why people have donated money and the proportions that that breaks down into. Because if it's just that people really wanted to be a part of it and, you know, they they want all the cool, you know, hats and donkeys and, and things that that entails, then I don't think that that will drop off next year at all. Um, but if it's you know for for very particular other reasons, then obviously it might do. And if it's to do with being part of something that's you know like breaking records or you know like only being aware of it because it was getting covered so much for being record breaking, then you know that next year if it if it doesn't snowball in quite the same way or or larger, then then it might sort of suffer from from um, that message not being amplified quite so much just by uh, traditional media? I think Valve will definitely know. keep supporting it and keep sort of driving uh, just keeps trying to drive it up I think. I mean uh, I mean, Team Fortress 2 is still getting su- it's supported right now they're, um, like I said they're, they're always trying to bring in new people uh, and new audiences from for their games forever and um, the more new people, the more like the more the total is likely to go up. Um, so if, I can see it continuing to rise. Yeah, um, maybe it won't grow as fast, but I can see it continuing to grow. Yeah. I think what you'll find is that, like, well, I think it could be as big next year. It could be bigger. Um, I think the thing that, like, one of the massive things that it has going for it is it was the the original, you know, of, of these and. Um, like other other Dota uh, tournaments have been in implementing sort of their versions of compendiums and and things like that, but um, obviously uh, they don't have the capacity to promise things in the same way that Valve can. No, exactly. Because I it's mean, their their technology and their map and their you know like as in they mm-hmm. they get to add. Uh, hero support for challenge modes and they do get to add you know like all this other stuff um, that other other people just simply can't can't promise so I think that theirs will always be able to be bigger and things it'll be interesting actually the thing that I'm most interested in is seeing which other um, which other esports uh, organizations and which other game companies adopt the uh, compendium model for their tournaments and who actually finds success in it? Yeah, no, that's a interesting point because that is the the strange thing about the international is it's the official tournament and 
from I, I don't know a lot about esports as you probably know if you read listen to this podcast very much. But from what I understand, most other major esports competitions are like organized separately. They aren't like they they aren't owned and organized by the company that makes the game. There's a where well, there's like yeah there's a lot of like third party type stuff and that's you know like they're still uh, you know uh, interesting tournaments and everything. It's just that yeah like they they just can't promise quite the same level of of change to the game or quite the same sort of um acts the the things that require that access um so yeah there's just an awful lot of uh yeah sorry i'm sorry i'm so tired um yeah so it's a yeah I don't think that really answers the question because the question was, you know, how much do you think it will earn? And I think I do think it has the capacity to just be even bigger next year. It's but but with those caveats. No, I couldn't put a number on it either. It's other that would involve far more maths than I am comfortable doing. Anyway, yeah. So those were the questions that I had. And so if you have more, then this would be an excellent time to add it in. I don't. So. Oh. So yeah, we should say goodbye instead. Well, indeed. Okay, well that was that was episode forty-eight. So we're only two away from the big five-zero. Mm. So if you guys have any any questions for next week, if we we rambled enough that you were like, hang on, I want to know more, then uh, then then you know get to the point, <laughs> then maybe just drop us an email and we will we will be able to do exactly that. Streamline. Spelt. Or- or if you have any answers to any of Pip's questions on this podcast, like, oh, yeah, you, like yeah, uh, like did you uh, try the what was it called? Sorry, the decapitation simulator. Oh, disunion. Like, did you try disunion and how did it make you feel? That sort of thing. Mm. Uh, we will read them aloud dramatically. Yeah, no, that could work. We'll have a conversation. We want this to be a, a two-way street. Well, to a certain extent, via email, be fine. <laughs> All right, bye everyone. Goodbye.